So pants my soul for You, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they continually say to me, Where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise, with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him for the help of His countenance. O my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land of the Jordan and from the heights of Hermon, from the hill Mizar. Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The Lord will command His loving kindness in the daytime, and in the night His song shall be with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God my rock, Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your tabernacle. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and on the harp I will praise you, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God. For I shall yet praise Him, the help of my countenance and my God. Our New Testament reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's page 1027 if you want to follow along in the church Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. We are hard-pressed on every side, 
yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. And since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak, knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus and will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God that he's, that he's given us this word. Let's pray together. Lord, once again, we look to you to bless the reading and now the preaching of your word. You alone have the words of life. To whom else shall we go? We pray that you would speak and that by your spirit we would listen. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen. So we're in the, the Psalms. We've been working through a summer evening series in the Psalms. And we've wrapped up uh, the first book, at least what we're going to look at in that first book of the Psalter, Psalms 1 through 41. And now we come into the second book of the Psalter, which starts at Psalms 42, 43. Uh, these, these Psalms here uh, show us, I think, more than we've seen yet so far in our, in our study, that what Calvin said about the Psalms is so true. Calvin said the book of Psalms is an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Every facet of the human experience is there in the Psalms. Every emotion is found there. Every experience can be found there. And, and so, of course, I think that's part of what makes the Psalms so precious. So, so, so they're, they're so relatable. So much has changed since the Psalms were written by the sons of Korah, like these ones here so many centuries ago. But the human heart hasn't changed. The anatomy of the human soul hasn't changed. And uh, the needs of our heart have not changed. In this, in this series, I've been emphasizing the importance of, of, of pausing before we, before we read ourselves into the psalm, of, of pausing and, and saying, okay, is this about the Lord's anointed? Is this about the Messiah in particular? What's the, what's the context here? How is this pointing to Christ? What's, uh, w- w- what can we learn about, uh, about the historical context around the psalms? Uh, but here in Psalms 42 to 43, what we see is that the psalm really does ask us, off the bat, to read ourselves into it. This is one of those psalms where it, where it really does do this. It beckons us to come and see ourselves uh, in the psalm itself. It uses this intensely personal language as though the sons of Korah, the, the guys who wrote it, are, are saying this psalm is taken from something we experienced. It's for every Israelite, though. It's for every member of God's covenant family who's experienced something like this. Okay, what, what, if the Psalms are an anatomy of every part of the soul, what part of the soul do we find here in Psalms 42 to 43? Well, we find the soul struggling with what the old authors used to call melancholy. We might call depression or at least a deep discouragement. 
the psalmist here is in a situation that he's unable to change. He can't do anything about his circumstances. He's, he's experiencing emotions that he can't change. He tries to, but he can't change them. Discouragement is, is smothering him, and he feels like his hands are tied. What does he do when he experiences that? Well, he cries out to God. Well, what are we to do when we're discouraged? And when it feels like it won't relent, uh, John Piper has a, has a wonderful chapter title at the end of his book, Desiring God, and it's, the title is, is all I want to share with you. It's called, it's, it's called this, When the Darkness Will Not Lift. And Piper's saying, what do you do when the darkness will not lift? What do we do, right, when, when the discouragement won't leave? The doubt, the, the fear, the anxiety. What do we do? What do we do when God's Providences just seem to not relent. Just painful providence after painful providence. And, and we pray and pray and don't seem to get an answer. The, the psalm here asks that question three times, right? Between Psalm 42 and 43, we see it three times. He, he says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And, and, and what's, the, what's the answer? What's the answer to this question about, about how we respond in these situations? Well, we see it here. Three times, the same answer is given. Hope in God. Hope in God. Hope in God. And the psalmist is talking to himself. He's preaching the gospel to himself. And so that, that's, that's what the psalmist is teaching us, brothers and sisters, that when the darkness will not lift, when we're, when we're stuck in discouragement, what do we do? Preach the gospel to yourself. Hope in God, the psalmist says over and over so our outline tonight was going to just follow the, the structure of the psalm here. We get, we get three movements. I was going to work through the two movements in Psalm 42 and then the, the last third movement, that's Psalm 43. I'll work through the first two, and as I said, we'll touch on the last one. But these are, these are our headings. The first movement of the psalm stanza there is verses 1 through 5, and that's, uh, the heading is Thirsting. Movement two is drowning, verses 6 through 11. Um, for what it's worth, here's movement three, Psalm 43, verses 1 through 5, waiting. Uh, and we'll be waiting for that one. I don't think we'll ever get there. So, um, thirsting, drowning, waiting are the three headings that we'll work through. So, first, verses 1 through 5, thirsting. The psalm starts with a description of how the psalmist is feeling in the present. We get this in verses 1 through 3. What's his present experience? He compares himself to a deer that's panting for water but not finding it. This deer is parched. And the psalmist says his soul feels like that. He says in verse 2, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He feels this desperate, absolutely necessary, unmet desire. God is to the psalmist's soul what water is to the body. Without it, his soul is going to, his, his soul will shrivel up and die. Have you ever been really, really thirsty? Think of a time when you were absolutely parched. Uh, we, in our culture, it's easy to get water, usually. Right? You just go, you turn on the faucet, there it is, there's some water. Uh, in the day that the psalmist is writing, though, it's not so easy, is it? Right? You have to find a place where there's drinkable water. You have to dig a well. You have to find a river. Um, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a very 
uh, it's a very dry land where the psalmist lives. And if a drought comes and the streams dry up, you might not know where to turn. Thirst is such a basic desire, isn't it? For such a basic necessity for life. It's interesting that the the psalmist picks up on the idea of thirsting here to compare his desire for God. um, he, he's saying that without, without having God, he will perish. Voss, Gerhardus Voss, comments on this. He says this, to thirst after a thing means the recognition that without that thing, there can be no life. It involves that in this one desire and its satisfaction, the whole meaning of life is centered. The whole energy of life is directed towards it. The goal of life is identified with it. To this to the sense of this spiritual craving, all other things are obliterated. Right? The psalmist is feeling this, such intense thirst after God that it means that he recognizes that without God, he has no life. There are no substitutes. Only God will do to quench his soul thirst. So, he's parched. Parched for God. But what exactly is going on here? Is the psalmist... Uh, is he lacking a sense of God's presence with him? Is he, is he feeling like God isn't close to him? I think there's an aspect of that here. He's thirsting after God. His thirst isn't being quenched. He doesn't feel some sense of God's presence, I think. He doesn't feel the, the blessing of God on him. But there's a sharp focus on his longing for God. It's like um, his longing for God is like a blade, and, a, and there's a point to it. There's a tip, and it's this. It's that he's not able to go to the temple we see this in, uh, hinted at in verse 2, and then it will come out more later in the psalm. But in verse 2 he says, When shall I come and appear before God? And as the psalm unfolds, we'll see that his desire is to go to the temple, to go to the place that's the center of where God meets with his people and blesses his people. So something is keeping him from, from going to the temple. Verse 3 then shows us that this something includes enemies. He says in verse 3 that my tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? So not only is he um, thirsting after God and not having that thirst satisfied because he's being kept from God's presence and God's blessing, he's, he's also uh, suffering because there are these enemies. Who are, who are keeping him from going to the temple. And, and they're mocking him. They're, they're rubbing salt in his wounds. They're saying, where is your God? It's not a sincere question when they say, where is your God? They're, they're, really, asking, um, they're really asking, why won't God save you? Right? And, and the implication is, either God isn't really your God, or... You're not really his covenant child. They're saying maybe God is just, maybe God is too powerless to do anything about this. Maybe he's a provincial God. He's got a few square miles he oversees uh, down near the temple in Jerusalem, but he's not God here. Where is your God? Or maybe, there's, maybe they're saying this, and this is the temptation the psalmist is wrestling with. Maybe, maybe God could do something about you and your situation, but he doesn't want to. He doesn't care to doesn't want to be bothered to. That's a temptation, isn't it, when, when discouragement comes that we feel that way? That temptation, either God's too weak to do something about this situation that I'm in, or He doesn't care enough 
to do something about this situation that I'm in. What should we do when that, when that temptation comes? Well, what does the psalmist do? Temptation comes. Where is your God? Either he doesn't care or he's not able to do anything. The psalmist here responds by going to God. We see it. It's, it's, it's so simple and obvious in the psalm that it's easy to miss, I think. It's, and it's found right as, we, right as we start the psalm in verse 1. He says, My soul thirsts for you, O God. So what's the psalmist doing? He's going to God. This isn't a lament to himself. This isn't just a tearful journal entry you know, for his own you know, ruminations. This is a lament to God, a prayer to God. It starts with a direct address. So the psalmist doesn't say, well, I'll just wait around for the Lord to show up and do something. No, he says, I'm going to pray. I'm going to seek God. He's going to, he's going to cry out to God. This is the first thing we need to do, loved ones, when, uh, when our hearts are downcast. That temptation, I think, is, is strongest when our hearts are down to stop praying, to give up on praying, to stop going to God. When, when, the, when we're doubting God's promises, the temptation is not to, not to bother telling God about His promises to care for us. The lesson from this first part of the psalm is keep going to God. Keep on, keep on, keep on going to God with that discouragement and doubt. So this is what the psalmist is going through in the present. He's thirsting after God. Something's keeping him from the temple. He doesn't feel the sense of God's presence and blessing. That's what he's going through in the present. So that's verses 1 through 3. And then he, then he remembers how it used to be in verse 4. He remembers that it wasn't always this way. And then we get this wonderful picture of how he used to be uh, with the procession of people actually leading them, going up to the temple. And, and the scene here is like, um, like Easter Sunday, right? Or Christmas for us. It's one of the great feasts probably in Jerusalem and the city's crowded with people and they're winding together up the streets of Jerusalem to worship God and they're singing together and shouting God's praises together. It's the scene of exuberance and joy. And the psalmist is saying, I remember that. Why is he doing this? Right, so he's in the midst of this painful present experience of great thirst after God. And then he stops and he remembers. It wasn't always this way. I think he's doing it on purpose. I think he's, he's reminding his own discouraged heart that, that, that this isn't, you know, what I'm going through now isn't permanent. Right? There was something before this. There'll be something after this. Because that's another temptation that we have uh, when, when we're discouraged. That this is just the way it's going to be. The psalmist says, I am going to intentionally remember God's grace to me in the past and my joy in God in the past. And he uses that as a springboard for hope. He, he springs off that memory in verse 4 into verse 5 with a sermon to his own soul. He says, Why are you cast down? Hope in God. So he was in the present experience. He remembers his joy, joyful experience in the past. And he springs forward in hope to the future, saying, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. My salvation, my, the help of my countenance that's translated elsewhere as my salvation and my God. So he preaches to his own soul. He says, soul, don't you remember how you used to worship God in glorious joy? 
Take confidence that you will do that again. Right, take confidence that, that you will again go to the temple, receive God's blessing, and enjoy that sweet fellowship with Him. And the psalmist isn't just being um, optimistic. He's not just saying, Akuna Matata, it's all going to work out. Everything will be fine. Um, he's, he's, he's not doing that. He's, he's not saying, well, let's just hope that it will get better. No, he's preaching gospel hope to himself. He's saying the same God that you used to praise on a crowded Passover at the temple is still your God. And though you feel far from him, you are not really out of his care and keeping. The same God loves you and cares for you. And God will bring an end in his time to this discouragement. So the psalmist looks beyond the horizon of present experience by faith to when God will deliver him from this. That's the first part of the psalm. Thirsting. And then it circles back around and kind of works through some of the same ideas in the second part of the psalm, which is our second heading, drowning. The psalmist just asked, right? Verse 5, he asks, Why are you cast down on my soul? And he preaches a sermon to himself. Hope in God. And then verse 6 shows us that just because he does this doesn't mean he's automatically healed. Right? Verse 5, he says, Why are you cast down? Verse 6, he says, My soul is cast down within me. So he's right back where he started, isn't he? But this time, we get a different metaphor. And... It's actually a more desperate metaphor, I think, beyond the metaphor of thirsting. Now we have the metaphor of drowning in verses 6 through 11. So verse 6, we get some detail here about why the psalmist is so discouraged. We get a hint as to where he is. The text tells us that he's in the land of the Jordan. He mentions Mount Hermon and the hill Mizar. So he's in the north of the kingdom of Israel. This is probably happening after the southern kingdom of Judah has split off and the northern kingdom has split off. And so he's, for some reason, he's up in the northern part. And this is probably at a time in Israel's history when the kings in the north are barring people from going down to the temple to worship the Lord. So the psalmist is, is barred from God's presence, but he refuses to forget the Lord. And so even though, though he's far from Jerusalem, he remembers God. And in verse, then in verse 7, we get this vivid description of what his discouragement feels like. It verse 7, Deep calls into deep at the noise of your waterfalls. All your waves and billows have gone over me. The picture there is like the psalmist is standing between torrents of water and they're rushing down and they're, they're, these roaring and crashing waves are, are violently overwhelming him. And there's something really uh, astounding in this verse, loved ones. And it's, it's, it's this. Who, whose waves are these? These aren't, these aren't enemies. These aren't God's enemies here that the psalmist is saying, comparing these waves to. He says, these are your waves. He's talking to God. He says, these are your waves. The things that feel like are, they're drowning me, they're God's waves. They're from God's the, the wave upon wave of discouragement. He says, it's your waves. We believe God is sovereign over everything. But when, you know, when the discouragement comes like that, are we, when, it, when it even feels like the psalmist here, like we're drowning in it, do we say, Lord, these are your waves. 
do we believe that when the sorrows like sea billows roll, as the hymn puts it, these are God's sea billows, divinely appointed by God, sent by God to overwhelm me. What do we say when we're in the midst of this? We say, these are your waves, O Lord. There was a, 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 a hymn writer in the 18th century who experienced something quite like this. Uh, his name was William Cooper. Perhaps you've heard his, his story. Uh, he wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Right? And, and what he's, that hymn is talking about these, uh, these, these great difficulties that God brings into our lives. The first verse goes like this. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. William Cooper, this hymn writer who wrote that, um, he was uh, a good friend of John Newton, the author of Amazing Grace. They actually collaborated on a hymnal together. He wrote, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, um, a few others. But but, uh, Cooper struggled intensely with depression. Really intensely. He attempted suicide many, many times. And um, he went through periods of just intense doubt and dark melancholy. And he's a picture for us of what the psalmist is going through here. But in his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, what does he do? He says with the psalmist, Lord, these are your waves. These are your waves. Interesting thing about uh, William Cooper is that even though he maintained that faith in God, uh, uh, he also struggled so much with depression that he wrote this, this other poem called The Castaway. And he based this poem on the story of someone he heard, a sailor who had drowned at sea. And he, he latched onto that story and saw it as an analogy for himself as he felt drowned under discouragement. And the last stanza of that poem goes like this. He says, No voice divine the storm allayed. No light propitious shone. When snatched from all effectual aid, we perished each alone. But I, beneath a rougher sea, and whelmed in deeper gulfs than he. Cooper wrote those words towards the end of his life when he was overwhelmed with despair. I share this story because it shows us, loved ones, the, just the, the depths of the mysteries of the providence of God toward his beloved. Why does God treat his saints this way? We know, right? Right, we know. Romans 8.28 tells us, all things work together for good for those who love God. But sometimes I think we read that verse and think it says, we know how all things work together for good. It doesn't say we know how. It says we know that all things work together for good. We don't know how. God knows. The last line of William Cooper's great hymn, makes this point so well. He says this, Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter and he will make it plain. So, loved ones, when discouragement comes, and even if it seems to never leave, hope in God. Don't, don't try to figure out why he's doing what he's doing. Trust his care. Acknowledge these are his waves washing over you. That's not a soft or easy comfort, but I think it is a comfort. I think it is a strong, sturdy, uh, indestructible comfort. 
the waves crashing over me, the discouragement, this too is from God. At this point, though, in the midst of feeling this, this sense of drowning under discouragement, the psalmist uh, turns and remembers God's fundamental attitude towards him. So he's, he's acknowledged uh, there in, uh, I think it's, where is it? Verse 6, verse 7. These are God's waves that are crashing over him. And then he says, then he says, the Lord will command, or the Lord commands, present tense, his loving kindness in the daytime. And in the night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. So the psalmist turns from saying, Lord, these are your waves, and I know that, to saying, the Lord will also command something else. Not only is he commanding the waves that are discouraging me, he's also commanding his loving kindness. He's commanding his, his steadfast love. The psalmist isn't talking about a future hope here. He's talking about something that's present, something that's, something that's uh, uh, true of him in the moment that he says it, even though he doesn't feel it. He mentions here that God is doing this day and night, so comprehensive every moment he's being upheld, encompassed by the steadfast love of God for him. He lives with that knowledge constantly. We should, we should note here uh, the name that the psalmist uses for God. This is the only time in this psalm that he calls God the Lord. It's all caps, right? Yahweh, covenant God, the I Am. Everywhere else in the psalm he calls him God, which is the word Elohim. And, and that's characteristic of this book of the Psalter that we're in now, this, this second book of the Psalter. It typically doesn't use Yahweh as much, Lord as much. It usually uses Elohim or God. And uh, I think there's good reason that it does. But here, in the middle of this psalm, the psalmist turns from using God's, God's name as God, which is a little more generic, to using that name Yahweh, Lord, my God, my covenant-keeping God. And then in the same breath, he turns from, from, from speaking of the Lord Yahweh, my covenant God, is speaking of the covenant faithfulness and love of this God. It's that word that the, uh, the New King James has as loving kindness. It's chesed in the Hebrew. We don't have a good uh, equivalent for it in English. It means a loyal love, a steadfast, unchanging commitment to do you good. And the psalmist is saying, even as God commands his waves over me and they crash over me and discourage me, he also commands his unfailing, covenant-keeping love. God's loyalty, the psalmist knows, God's loyalty to me is boundless and endless. No matter how I feel. Loved ones, as we consider this, I want to point you to the place where we see covenant love most fully. And of course, it's our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself is for us, the, the inarguable, undebatable evidence of God's chesed, His steadfast love for us. Even, as, right, even if we're in an experience like the psalmist here, where it feels like the waves won't stop crashing over us, yet we know we can look to the objective historical truth that God sent His Son. He didn't spare His Son for my sake. And we know that Jesus went through this experience that's being described for us here in this psalm more intensely than anyone else. That, that he thirsted on the cross. That, that he felt uh, far away, forsaken by God. 
He was taken outside the city walls of Jerusalem, taken away from the temple, away from the place of God's blessing, crucified and cut off from God's blessing. The waves of God's wrath rolled over him and, and drowned him. And it's also that we can rest assured God's covenant with us will stand. Christ has secured it. If God didn't spare His own Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? So when discouragement comes and God feels far away, hold on to the covenant love of God, most of all as we see it in Christ. So the psalmist here, he roots his soul, and so we should root our souls in this great hope. But then again, as, as the psalm moves on, uh, he, the psalmist continues, he still feels the pain he felt before, even though he's rooting his soul in this wonderful truth that God is his covenant Lord who loves him, uh, he's still feeling great pain and, and discouragement. And we see this dynamic continue as the psalm continues. The mixing here of the pain of his present experience with the faith that looks beyond that present experience to God and his promises. And it's wonderful that the psalmist does this. We we want a quick fix. But the discouragement that's being described here isn't something that gets a quick fix. There's no trite truisms in the psalms. The psalmist still feels like he's thirsting to death and drowning to death, but he's still holding fast to God's promises. So he says in verse 9, I say to God my rock. So he starts, right? Verse 9, God is my rock. God is my refuge. God is where I'm safe. What does he say to his rock? Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Verse 10, as a breaking of my bones, my enemies reproach me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? You see, he's holding those two things together over and over in the psalm. So the enemies haven't relented. The pain is present and real and intense. There's no, uh, this isn't a brief discouragement that he's feeling. How does he respond? Right, so this is the second time he's worked through this. How does he respond? Once again, we see the refrain. Verse 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. It's surprising, I think. Why, why does he ask the question again? Why are you cast down, O my soul? We should know why he's cast down. But he, he is, again, right? He's, he's stepping outside of himself for a minute, turning. He's sitting himself in the front. He's getting up in the pulpit and he's preaching the gospel to his soul. He's saying, listen, why are you cast down? Hope in God. He's saying once again, God is your salvation. God will come through in his time. God will take, uh, take care that his promises to you are sure, that they're yes and amen. This is the second time the psalmist does this. And, and this is showing us, brothers and sisters, uh, what biblical self-talk is, right? We're not supposed to uh, give ourselves the, you know, this isn't a, this isn't a pep talk. This isn't positive uh, thinking about ourselves and, and what we need to do better on. This is preaching God's promises to yourself, most of all when you don't, when you don't feel it. So that's, that's the second part of the psalm, drowning. Let me just say one more thing, brothers and sisters, as we close. Looking to Psalm 43, which I think is the next section that connects with Psalm 42. 
we had time, as I said, I was going to, to preach on this as the third part of this psalm under the heading Waiting. Uh, because what we see here in this third movement is that the psalmist is, is waiting on God, crying out to him for salvation. And he asks him for two things. He asks him that God would vindicate him, right? That God would, that God would clear him of the charges, that God would, uh, would save him, justify him. And he asks, second, that God would send out his light and truth, rescue him. Show up in glorious salvation and bring him to the holy dwelling place. Bring him to the temple. He knows, the psalmist knows, if God does this, then he'll be brought to God. He'll find exceeding joy, as he says, in God's presence. And so we're left wondering at the end of the psalm, well, did this happen? Did this happen for the psalmist? Did, did God do this for him? And we're not told what his, the rest of his life experience was after reading this. But we know that, that ultimately, in Christ, yes, this did happen. Right, that, that God did send forth his light and truth for his people, for us, for this psalmist here. We have been saved. Christ did come and, and work salvation for his people. And what does Christ do? Well, he, he takes us. And he brings us to the heavenly temple that we were barred from by the holiness of God. He, he takes us and he brings us there to experience the fullness of God's presence and blessing. So the psalmist looks forward to this by faith. Even though he doesn't see it clearly like we see it. He saw the shadows. We see, we see the reality. What do we learn here in this final part of the psalm? Well, he fills his vision. He fills his heart with hope. of the, uh, Just contemplating that day when the Lord does bring him to, uh, to himself in great joy. Brothers and sisters, we have, we have something so much more wonderful in the temple in Jerusalem that he was looking to. He was, he was drawing comfort, as he should have, by the shadow, but we have the reality, the thing itself, right? Christ in heaven, in the heavenly temple. So, in closing, fill your heart with those realities. Meditate on those things. And if you're in discouragement, or if a, a family or a friend is in discouragement, encourage them in these ways. Encourage them, encourage yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself. Hope in God. He will bring salvation in His time. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we look to You to bring salvation, to do, uh, to do Your work, to finish what You have by Your grace begun. And we know You will. We ask that You would be at work in us. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen. Our final hymn is number 535, Oh, the Deep, Deep Love of Jesus. Let me play through the, slide, the MIDI file here. And then we will sing. So let's stand, number 535 in the Trinity Hymnal.
Let's sing together. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty 